This morning, there's a message in my heart. There's a lot to get through. I think I've broken my record for PowerPoints this morning, so do bear with me. But I want to start with this. Have you ever found yourself asking the wrong kind of questions? Have you ever found yourself asking the wrong kind of questions? I know I have. Like even in the last couple of months, here's a few that I've asked. And they've all been to my wife. The first one, are we doing presents for Christmas this year? How many of you guys know that that's just always a wrong question to ask your wife? Or this one, do you want coffee? Do you want coffee? Like, is the Pope Catholic? It's not do I want it, it's how much I want it. And when do I want it? Thank you very much, sir. And probably my biggest blunder of all happened only a week ago. You can read it. Are you sure it's okay to celebrate our wedding anniversary on a different day this year? No, it's not okay to celebrate our wedding anniversary on a different day this year. You see, sometimes we find ourselves asking the wrong questions in life, don't we? And you know, Jesus was constantly confronting the wrong kinds of questions. In fact, there were a lot around him, we would call them Pharisees and teachers of the law, who would ask him the wrong questions all the time. Here's just a few. Who is my neighbor, Jesus? That wasn't a question to actually get at the heart of who is a neighbor. It was to try and get off the hook of being a neighbor. Or is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Well, we all know that that question was asked basically to try and have a go at Jesus and put him in a corner. And lastly, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Don't you mean if you saw him not eating with tax collectors and sinners, you'd ask, why doesn't he? You see, these were questions and missing the point. And I think sometimes we ask some of our own when it comes to faith in God, such as, will I go to heaven when I die? I'm not writing that off as a question, but I don't think it's the main point. The point is life with Jesus, now and forevermore. Or when will Christ come back? Again, over the ages, people have predicted the year and the time. And Jesus himself said, you do not know the time or the hour that the Father appoints these things. Your job is to trust me. Or my favorite one of all, and I think in different ways we all ask this of different things, can I fill in the blank and still be a Christian? In other words, How far can I get to the line before I'm no longer in? All of these are not necessarily bad in in and of themselves, but they're the wrong kinds of questions. And we're asking them in the wrong context. This morning, I want to park around a story. It's a story probably a lot of us know quite well. It's the story of Moses being called And I want to pick it up in Exodus 3, verse 7 to 15. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, 
Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. That's a lot of ites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord this morning. But did you pick in this passage a lot going on? Did you pick out maybe where a wrong question was directed at God? Did you see it in there somewhere? I'm going to show it to you. (laughs) It's when Moses says this, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And we know... We know it was a wrong question to ask because of God's response. He doesn't say, well, Moses, you're a pretty top guy. I've I've had my eye on you for a while, and um, I think your CV's pretty good, and I want to choose you for this particular mission. He says, I will be with you. As we start a new year, I don't know about you, but I find myself asking this question. Who am I to... God? Who am I to be assistant pastor at Tobal Baptist? Who am I to speak into young lives? Who am I to bring a third child into this world? My goodness. Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? And you know, often we'll quote Nelson Mandela. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be, sister? Um, And I just want to show a quick meme. I think it sort of captures the heart of today. (laughs) I don't know if you can read that, but it's a dog looking in the mirror, kind of affirming himself. And he's saying, I will catch the ball today because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. (laughs) And you know, as we go back to the story of Moses, we can't pass this over. He asked this question for a good reason. See, Moses, first of all, didn't know his biological mom and dad. He was adopted in to the nation of Egypt at just infancy. Follow that up in the narrative. He just, you know, casually becomes a murderer, kills one of the Egyptians he sees mistreating his Israelite people. And then he becomes a fugitive, And last of all, if he didn't need any more issues with himself, he becomes a foreigner in a land not his own, in the land of Midian. And so the next picture, we can see that from an early age, 
Moses was set to have some issues. He was set up to have a few issues. And that's why he finds himself going, God, who am I? Who am I to go on this mission? And not only that, but he has firmly in his mind who he is going to be sent to. This man called Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. This man that had basically ordered a genocide of all the infant boys in the land, which is why Moses was who he became. And yet, in spite of all these difficulties, God says this, I will be with you. Not, well, Moses, you're a good bloke, and I think you got what it takes. No, I will be with you. I need to hear that this morning. Because I've got a lot of questions of my own. I have doubts, I have fears, I have insecurities. But this morning, God says, I will be with you. And so really, God is saying this, Moses, the only thing you need to know about who you are is that you're the one who I will be with. All right, let's continue in the story. So Moses says to God, okay, so suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Okay, so this is where the meat really kicks in. So God is now recognizing that Moses is asking a good question. He's now turned his heart from who he is, and he's asking, God, who are you? And what he actually says is, what's your name? What's your name? In the world of the Hebrew Scriptures, according to Michael Knowles, a scholar, a personal name was often thought to indicate something essential about the bearer's identity, origin, birth circumstances, or the divine purpose that the bearer was intended to fulfill. So when Moses says, God, hey, it's great that you're the God of my fathers, but that's not going to cut it. What's your name? Tell me who you are, God. He's asking, God, who are you? What's your identity? What's your nature? And this is what God says. He says, I am who I am. That's a better question, Moses. Or another translation, better translation in fact, whatever I am, I will be. God is speaking to his consistency that whatever he is, which is being itself, he will always be it. Not like our brother who let us down last week. Not like the spouse we got into a fight with, maybe even on the way to church this morning, if we're honest. No, God, yesterday, today, and forever. Now let's pause. Did you know that God has a name? Did you know that God, not just Lord or King or titles that we give to him, that God has a name? And this name is Yahweh. This name is Yahweh. Let's break that down. Yahweh in the Hebrew, because in the Hebrew they didn't bother with E's and O's. They didn't bother with the vowels. They just had consonants. And so Yahweh was spelled like this, Y-H-W-H. And it means he is. It's the third person way of saying I am. 
And what's happened in our translations is we've translated Yahweh into the Lord. And that's unfortunate, because in doing that, even though we put capital letters on it, we've reduced God's name to a title. We've reduced the personal, living God that shows up to people like Moses and you and I and says, I'm calling you and I'm rescuing you from slavery. And we've reduced it to a title, the Lord. But as long as we know that every time we see the Lord in our translations in English, we can say, that's God's name, that's Yahweh. That means I am who I am. I will be who I will be. And so when we come to the New Testament, and there's this great affirmation in the early church, and it went like this, only three words, it was Jesus is Lord. What that saying is, Jesus is Yahweh in flesh and blood. Jesus is not sort of God version 2.0. Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. In Colossians it says, for it pleased God for the fullness of God to dwell in Jesus. And so, we carry on. This is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. I know it was going to be meaty this morning. Bear with me. And so in Exodus 6, a bit later on, the Lord says this, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, and I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, as El Shaddai. But my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make... Oh, but by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself fully known to them. And so what we have is a progressive revelation happening here in the story that we call the Bible of who God is. And so, it's not until Moses is on the top of Mount Sinai that we get the full, complete answer to his question about the meaning and significance of God's name, courtesy of John Mark Comer this morning. And the thoughts that follow, if you have a chance to read it, this book is brilliant. It summarizes all of what's going to happen in the rest of this message in just beautiful language. And it's called God Has a Name, John Mark Comer. Read it if you can. But I want to take you to that passage, the passage on the top of Mount Sinai. See, Moses is gone in the power and the strength of Yahweh. And by the force and the might of Yahweh himself, Israel has been redeemed, has been rescued from slavery in Egypt. And now they're at the foot of this mountain, and they've been given the law of God. But you know, a heartbreaking thing happens. We read in Exodus 32 that they make a God unto themselves, a God made of gold, fashioned into a calf, and they worship a created thing rather than the creator. And what has to happen is that Moses has to go back on top of the mountain once again, has to get the law in his hands once more. And it's just before this moment, just before God appears to him again, where Moses is just, he's on his knees, he's crying out, and he's going, God, show me your glory. And this is what Yahweh does in response. It says in Exodus 34, verse 5 and 7, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, 
slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. We're going to spend the rest of this morning just looking at this. Because this passage here, if John 3.16 is the mantra for any Christian, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, if that's the mantra for Christians, then this was the thing that Jews, that the nation of Israel, bound around their wrists. This was so central. And it's in fact the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. It's showing up all the times in different pieces, in the Psalms, in the prophets, all over the show. So we're going to park up line by line, because this is God's name. This is the revelation, face to face with Moses, of who God is. God gets a lot of bad rap in the world we live in, and as Christians we need to own our part in that. But you know, as we dwell on this, as we meditate on this this morning, this has the power to undo some of those false, distorted views of who God is. First line, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God. Two words here, compassionate and gracious. Compassionate, or rahum in Hebrew, is the feeling a mother or a parent has toward her infant child. Now looking around the room, and most of you have been parents, or are parents, as we speak. I myself am a parent. And you know that feeling I'm talking about. Whether it was your first child, whether it's your adult children, and maybe they're wayward, they've fallen off the rails, but you know that feeling. That's compassion. That's the feeling a mother has when she picks up her child. That's the feeling. God has that feeling for each of us this morning. And gracious. You know, we, we think, well, gracious is just compassion, right? No, gracious is an action word. Gracious is hanun in Hebrew, and it means to help someone out in their time of need, to show grace. It's an action word. You know, how many of you, as a parent, does not want to do the best for your kid and will not move mountains to do the best for your kid, to, to show compassion, to show grace? And these word, two words together are powerful. They're saying that, that God has compassion, just like Jesus. He was moved with compassion, for he saw the crowds. They were like sheep without a shepherd. He was moved with compassion. And then the grace of God is that help that he gives to each one of us out of that compassion. And if we were to pick one word to try and like sum all that up, it would be this word of mercy. This word of mercy. In the New Testament, we're encouraged, be merciful as your Father is merciful. And the greatest story that Jesus ever told of mercy was of the father and the prodigal son. That while he was yet a long way off, the father ran to him. He showed 
mercy. And that's why in Hebrews 4 verse 16, we read, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. There's that word grace, gracious. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Yahweh is compassionate and gracious. Yahweh is also slow to anger. Slow to anger. Now, slow to anger literally means long in the nostrils, or long in nostrils. Now, how many of you have ever, going back to the parent metaphor, how many of you ever had to breathe in a pretty deep breath? Because you're angry at your kids. You may love them all the time, but you're not always happy with them. This thing of slow to anger is that God is long in the nostrils. It's a, it's a pictorial word. And the Hebrew language is full of these pictures to describe God. It's not, it's not literally God has nostrils. Forget that. It's that it's trying to get you, it's trying to draw you into something. He's long in the nostrils, he's slow to anger. And it has the sense of patience and long suffering. God is not quick to flare up. God is not wrathful in a moment. He's not volatile, he's not quick to lose control. But God is slow to anger. He does get angry. And his anger is a response to the evil in the world. You know, as a parent, when you see your kid getting caught up in the wrong thing, in the wrong crowd, doing stupid stuff, you get angry. And God is angry at the evil in the world. And his anger is from a parent-like love for his children and is completely just. It's completely just. And if you want a story of how slow God is to get angry, because I think some of us live with this sort of quick-to-anger God in the back of our head, like he's just ready to smite us at the first wrongdoing, we just want to read Jonah and the story of Nineveh. You know... From the time of God's first impending judgment of Nineveh to final judgment, that was 150 years. That was at least two lifetimes of time for God to finally get angry and bring judgment. And the way he did it was he just stood back and Babylonians came in and wiped out the Assyrian everything. There's, there's nothing left there. You see... To quote John Mark Comer, love, at least the kind of love Jesus talked about, often leads to anger. We get angry about things we care deeply about, things we're passionate about. This is the kind of anger we see in Yahweh, anger that is patient, just, and unselfish, that comes out of a place of love, anger that comes from a father who cares about his kids. Yahweh is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. That's the next line. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. And I used to read this as, well, that's just repetition. You've already said he's compassionate and gracious. What has abounding in love and faithfulness got to say more about that? Two things. And there's actually quite a bit. Love, hesed in Hebrew, is steadfast love, unfailing love. And it's got this sense of covenant loyalty. We'll come back to that. And faithfulness is emit, and it means truth, trustworthiness. And together the two help to define one another. God's love is his faithfulness, and God's faithfulness 
This is love. And God's love is His faithfulness and round and round. They're bound, bound together. God, Yahweh, is loyal. He's loyal. He never abandons His people. And He shows this by covenanting firstly to Israel and then in Jesus to us. And there's this weird story that illustrates how far God aims to go to show his loyalty. It's in, he, um, in Genesis 15. And I've always read it, and it's like, that's a bit crazy. But it's powerful. In Genesis 15, God is bringing his covenant to Abraham. Abraham is the first man that God calls out, and he says, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. This is the beginning of God's plan to save the world. And in the story, he calls Abraham to cut up these different animals and to lay the two halves parallel, side by side, with a gap through the middle. And then Abraham has a vision, a vision of a burning torch moving through these cut-up animals. Pretty gruesome, actually. You may not want to share that one with your kids too, too quick. But you know, what this is saying is that and this was a regular part of doing covenant, was this process. But only Yahweh, this is a picture of Yahweh, this torch, and only Yahweh passes through. And there's blood on the path he moves through. And Yahweh is saying, it'll be my, my blood. Only I will pass through. And every promise I've made, even if you are unfaithful to the end, I will keep my promise. And by my blood, I will keep this covenant. And John Mark Comer, he says the rest of the Old Testament, post-Abraham, post this story, is really the entire Bible, and really the entire Bible is about Yahweh faithfully keeping his covenant with Abraham's family and Israel failing miserably on her end. And he goes on to say, Jesus takes all our failure, a millennia of broken promises, and he drags it to the cross absorbing it in his death and then breaking its hold over humanity through his resurrection. Yahweh made a promise and he was faithful to the point of death. And it's because of Yahweh's love and faithfulness that we can look forward to a world set free from the entropy, the suffering, the pain of death. God's promise is that he will bless the world through his people. And he's faithful to that promise to the very end. And lastly, Yahweh, he maintains love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. A little word on each one of those points. Maintaining has the sense of to guard, to protect. God wants to guard his love. And what is his love? His love is limitless. That word thousands, don't take it as too literal. It means that God's love is limitless. It's limitless. And he forgives. He's forgiving. That word forgiving, nasa in the Hebrew, means to lift up, to carry, to take away. To take away. And that's exactly what he does. Not only in the Old Testament, but through Jesus on the cross. He takes away every sin. And we have this combo of words at the end here. Wickedness, rebellion, and sin. These all mean slightly different things. But together, 
they mean the full range of human corruption. Every way in which we've polluted ourselves through rebelling, through sin, through wickedness, God forgives and forgives again. And as Douglas K. Stewart says, God does not reluctantly forgive sins against himself and others, as though he kind of has to do it. He does so eagerly as a manifestation of his character. It's an overflow of who he is. And lastly, and this might be the one that we grimace the most over, that we want to cringe over, and we can't take it lightly or skip over it, but it's these lines here. Yet Yahweh does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. The guilty, that is those who don't want forgiveness, whether out and out have just rejected God or whether they just haven't admitted that they're sinners. God will not let the guilty off the hook. That's what this is saying. God is just. He promises to rid his world of evil. And that includes everyone that does not side with him, open their lives to him, accept his life. And you know, that's good news. This morning, it might make us shudder. It might make us quake a little in our seats. But that's good news. God is committed to ridding his world completely, wholeheartedly, and our own lives of evil and of sin and of wickedness. And he punishes the children for the sin of the parents. You know, parents' sin has consequences. This line is saying there's a consequence to the sin of our parents for the, for the children's future. And that sin runs in families. Man, I know this only too well. The anger I feel sometimes, in a moment, it's certainly not slow to anger at times, I can, I can see my dad completely in that response and other things. But what it's saying here is that Yahweh is committed to getting rid of sin in your family line for good. He punishes it. He wants it gone. He wants it out of there. And then the last line to the third and fourth generation. Picture a scale, because this is what's happening here. It says, maintaining love to thousands, punishing to the third and fourth. Can you see how if there was a scale, they're a little out of balance? Thousands, third and fourth? What's going on here? What God is revealing is the same thing that James in his letter revealed that mercy triumphs over judgment. That if God maintains his love to thousands, but he punishes to the third and the fourth, the sin that is still in our family, passed down and down, his love is far greater. His mercy triumphs over judgment. And so this morning, man, that was a lot. Maybe that was too much. <laughs> but what I want you to hear is that this is God. This is God's name. This is who God is this morning. 
And I'm overwhelmed by it. Like I, as I was just preparing some of these thoughts and this message, I was overwhelmed. This is, this is God. This is not the God of, of comics. This is not the God of caricatures that we see in the media or portrayed in debacles like Israel Folau. I mean, forget that. This is God. This is Yahweh. This is who God is. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. This year, I know that I need to start not with the question, who am I? Because it sits there and it wants to keep coming up. But I want to start this year with who is my God? Who is Yahweh? Who is Yahweh? Let's pray. Yahweh, we thank you for who you are. Oh God, there's just, there's no words and yet there are words. For this morning we have seen your words. And Lord, they came straight from your mouth. And so Lord, we just sit under them again. That you are Yahweh, the I Am. That whatever you are, you will always be. And that who you are is that you are compassionate and gracious. You are slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet you do not leave the guilty unpunished. You punish the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Yahweh, this is who you are. And I pray this year that this would be a year that we come to not just know it in our minds, but in our hearts. Not just know it in theory, but in practice, God, that we would experience who you are afresh in deeper and more mighty ways. In your name, amen. Amen.